everyone. Welcome to the Steve Maxwell Drums Podcast. Don't forget to check us out on our website at www.maxwelldrums.com and then our reverb stores at Steve Maxwell Drums-Chicago and Steve Maxwell Drums-New York. We also have social media, uh, two Instagram accounts, at Maxwell Drum Shop Chicagoland and then at Maxwell Drum Shop. And then also on Facebook, Steve Maxwell and Steve Maxwell Drum Shop. And then, of course, check us out on Twitter at Maxwell Drum Shop. We will interview players, collectors, drum and cymbal builders, and also teachers about all things percussion. And you can go to YouTube if you want to see the video. We'll have pictures of drum shops, drum sets, badges, cymbals, all kinds of fun stuff. So let's get started. We hope you enjoy it. Three, two, one. <laughs> Paul Jackie. <laughs> Hi, Steve. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Good. And yeah, glad to have you here. Glad to be here. It's uh, it's been a pretty pretty crazy year, 2020. But oh, jeez, yeah, <laughs> all the crazy stuff. Yeah. You know. One good thing is we have a little bit of extra time to to do these podcasts. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. Get and, to talk to different people and you know look at some different things and some different experiences and stuff like that. So definitely, you doing you doing okay these days? Doing okay. You know, unfortunately, not much happening with the gigs and stuff like that. A lot of those places are closed, or um, the one place I worked at for a number, of, a number of years is open two hours a night. Sure. So rather than, you know, all night, so you just do what you can, that's all. Yeah, yeah. I've, Playing outside, did one or two outside things this summer, so. And I know, you know. I, we, we got together maybe a month ago, you came by the shop, mm-hmm. and that was, that was good, good to see you. We're not really doing the jam session anymore, which is where we would run into each right. other every now and then. Um but uh, but yeah, this this will be a fun one because you have um, yeah you got just all kinds of fun stories about uh, about the, the the shops and uh, like the, of the Chicagoland area over the last thirty years. Yeah, <laughs> I I started at Frank's Drum Shop. I started going there when I was in high school, mm-hmm. and of course my dad was telling me I don't want you driving downtown. Of course I'd steal the car and drive downtown. I had oh, to be careful. He didn't want you going down there. He didn't want me going down there, Just but I did in case anyway. You get a fender bender or something. Exactly. And I remember <laughs> the first time I walked in there with the elevator, the guy sitting on the on the chair, listening to jazz, which was cool. And you open the elevator, and there's just drums and all these mallet instruments, and just stuff everywhere. It was great. And I just, you know, when the first time anybody walked into that place, they just couldn't believe it because there was just so much stuff in there. Yeah, I've and, seen pictures. You know, and after a while, of course, when I started working there, it was nothing because you're there every day for so many hours every day. But it was great. And uh, I learned. From, that was the most important thing, for me at least. He had me started. He started the old man, Maury, okay, great old guy, Maury LaShawn. He had me doing rentals. And yeah, yeah. I, and I well, didn't. Paul, before we get too deep into into the the shop stuff, because I know you've got just a a plethora of stories about um, you know that shop and then mm-hmm. other shops you worked at, because you you know quick sidetrack, you may have been the first guy I bought symbols from, possibly, because I know, but that that that, that that's that uh, that's for later. We'll, we'll get into that later. <laughs> but usually, when with these, I start with you, and just how you got into music originally. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll, okay. we'll get back to to all the okay. all the Chicago shop stuff. But that yeah, was that was basically my mom and dad. Okay. My mom and dad, um, they were Bobby Soxers. They used to go dancing. Mm-hmm. And my dad told me a story of 
He went to see the Dorsey Band at the Melody Mill in like 1942. And Buddy Rich was playing drums, I believe. And whenever, whenever my aunts and uncles or anybody, any of his friends came by, he put on records. Hmm. And it was the Dorsey Band, and he had, a, he had a Benny Goodman record. He had a couple of Frank Sinatra records. So there was always good music there. And which... Uh which city? Were you in one of the suburbs you grew I, up in? or was We it? lived in Westchester till the time I was 11. Okay. And then we moved to Lombard. Okay. And I grew up in Lombard, junior high and high school. Yeah, it's real close to me. I was in, in Wheaton. Wheaton, so. yeah. right, right down the road, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he was playing records, and I played clarinet in the school band. I wanted to play drums. And it was like, no, no, we don't want to oh, deal with that. I didn't know that. So I played clarinet for a year and a half, and one of the, a good friend of mine, Donald Andre, played snare drum. And basically, you're playing marches and you know different kind of concert pieces. It was like an it was like an entry level band, okay? Right. So this friend of mine gave me a pair of broken drumsticks. So I tried to play, and he showed me how to hold them and stuff like that. When we moved to Lombard, I could put the clarinet aside, and I played on the living room rug, sitting on the rug, and I played in front of the stereo console. Sure. My brother had Ventures Records. He had um, Beach Boys, and my dad had these other records, but I wasn't into that at first. And then um, a friend of my dad's, he came over one time, and he played drums as a kid. And now... So this is basically the swing and some of the bebop things that he was into as a young guy. Mm -hmm. So he had Buddy Rich records. He had a Cozy Cole record. He had a Louis Belson record, okay? And he played those, and I just kind of, you know, that's it. And I just, uh, I started, I remember I used to cut lawns in the neighborhood, and I'd get five or six bucks, and I'd go to the Zaire store, and I'd buy a record. Because yeah. they were four ninety nine and the other ones were five forty nine, the newer ones. <laughs> sure. So I bought Nefertiti, I bought Miles Davis record uh, there, I bought Miles Smiles, I bought a Buddy Rich record there. I started buying records there. And I just started listening and trying to figure out what these guys were doing. Of course, you put on something like Nefertiti right at first and it's it's a little scary because the music is just so outrageous. And little by little, you know, I started to learn from that and learn from listening to records. I didn't have a drum lesson until I was 21. Mm. And I had some lessons with Phil Stanger, who became a great friend of mine and a big help a little bit later on. And I studied with Bob Tillis. Um, he had me and I can't remember this guy's name. We were private students at Frank's Drum Shop, and he was teaching at DePaul, mm -hmm. a block away. And he asked me, um, how would you feel about enrolling in DePaul and this, and this, and this? So, because he wanted to, he didn't want to teach so, privately anymore. So was this, so so you're talking about, I try to do everything like chronologically. Mm -hmm. So so you, you were still living in Lombard. Mm -hmm. And then right. um, did, did you have, is this like after you had first taken the car out to Frank's or? This was the yeah. Same, same this was a couple of, just so many years later. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> just to keep everything in, I was, in, you know, I, in order for everybody. I was I was uh, accumulating my retail experience. I was selling clothes. So how, okay, so so yeah. What, what was your first retail job? Yeah. <laughs> my first retail job was uh, in Yorktown Shopping Center at a Chess King store. 
Okay. <laughs> selling, well, they called it contemporary young man's clothes. And sure. my dear friend, my best friend for many, many years, Michael Houlihan, he was working there. He got me a job there. And all of us, me and Mike and Jeff and four or five of us that went to high school together, we all ended up working for them, and all of us became store managers. Hmm. So I was a store manager, and I had one day a week off. And that one day, I'd drive all the way downtown, and I enrolled at DePaul, and I had a snare drum lesson and a mallet lesson, but it wasn't, <laughs> it was basically drum set. Yeah. So we combined the two, and I had an ensemble, and I had a theory class. So I was there from about so 10 what, in the, what year is this? 76, 75 or 70. No, it was before Bob passed. So this is like 75, 74 or 75. Okay. And Bob passed away, unfortunately. I want to say 76, seven, you know, April of 76, something like that. And he was a young guy. And I kind of floundered. I didn't really know what to do. I took some lessons with Phil Stanger. Um, and I was still a store manager, and I really wanted to get out of that. And that's when I, so many, and so many months later is when I started working at Frax. Sure. You know, and that was, it was a little bit different. And at first, I didn't, it was a bit overwhelming because I didn't know this from this from this. I didn't know any of that stuff. So that, at that point, were you playing, uh, playing any gigs, you know? Were you going out? And I, there was... Hotel gigs or maybe... Essentially what happened was I was in high school with um, this guy, Burl Gluskin, was, he taught at Triton College, I believe. Okay. And he had two sons, Jeffrey and David. One played trombone, the other one played saxophone. And they were, for their age, they were pretty good jazz players. <laughs> sure. And I played in their basement, and we played some gigs here and there. We played a wedding. We played this. We played that. And anytime there was anything that they wanted to do, they'd call me. And sure, basically they didn't <laughs> they didn't know anybody else. And um, they his dad Burl was a big help. I guess I'd ask him some questions, and he kind of coached me a little bit. And I was just starting to get my feet wet in the jazz world. And so when when you started playing when you were younger, you said that uh, you, you you used to buy records. But what what got you into jazz? Um, that friend of my dad's, Mr. Kent, Bob okay. Kent, he's the one that showed up at our house with some Buddy Rich records and Cozy Cole, and uh, he had a Louis Belson record. <laughs> so many years later, my dad bought me a Gene Krupa record. And I saw that, and I went, okay, I think I know who this guy is. <laughs> and this record was basically like um, different points of his career. So it was Sing, Sing, Sing with a quartet rather than a big band. Uh, one or two, um, Drum Boogie and a couple of things that he had made famous with his big band, but they were smaller bands. On the, si on the, op on the opposite side, there was one or two big band cuts. Those were pretty cool, but the smaller group stuff was really cool. And he yeah. played great. You know, he was, you know, I'm, I, I remember thinking, this guy's really, this is so some really cool stuff. Do you remember, like, maybe the first, like, live show that really made a difference? Okay. <laughs> you ready for this? This is true. A friend of mine, not too long ago, John Logan, sent me a poster. Okay. I saw something in the newspaper. This was May of 1968 right before I graduated from junior high, all right? 
And I had a drum set for a couple of months, and I was starting to get my feet wet and trying to play and trying to do this and trying to do that. I was not even in high school yet, and I saw this thing in the paper, and I showed it to my dad, Buddy Rich. And I said, will you take me there? And he looks at me, and he says, yeah, let's go. Okay, so. The, the newspaper. This, this is, like I said, May of 1968, and my friend John Logan sent me a poster. He emailed me this picture of this poster. Mm. Okay, is this the concert that your dad took you to? Three bands, the Kinetic Playground, okay, five bucks to get in. Three bands, Joe Cocker. That, that's in, the venue, yeah, the. That, that stayed a venue for a long time, right? It, it, I, it's changed hands, and it's become maybe, a couple of different... I think it's it still is a venue. <laughs> I think it's Rainbow now. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, okay. I've, I, I remember hearing about that on the radio when I was young. Mm-hmm. Aaron Russo's <laughs> Kinetic Playground. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a cool modern name So <laughs> in, in any era. Five bands, <laughs> or three bands. It's five bucks to get in. Joe Cocker in the Grease Band. The Buddy Rich Orchestra and the Who. Mm. Okay, and you sat on the floor. It was just a great big, huge open area. There was a little concession stand and some chairs and some other stuff far away. <laughs> okay, and the, the stage was semicircular, and you sat on the floor, and it was dirty. It was like a gym floor, and it was dirty and everything. And we sat there, and I've been to a couple shows like that. We watched. <laughs> sure, I have too since. Um, when the guys set up Rich's band, like in just a couple of minutes, they moved the piano, they pulled the drums out and did this and did that. And I snuck up on the stage and I hid behind, there was amplifiers and drums and stuff all over the place. I hid behind one of these amplifiers, there's one of these big, huge guitar amps that was about four feet high. And I sat there and I was about three feet from the drums. And I just sat there and I just, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> sure. It was really, it was, it played about an hour. And of course, you know, he played great, the band sounded great, and all these young people with hair down to hair and everything, they loved it. Yeah. And we'll be back in an hour, you've been a great audience, and this, and this, and this. And when The Who came on, we moved further back. And <laughs> we, were, we were there all night. We left there about four o'clock in the morning, okay? We saw all three sets, and after Rich's last set, we left. And we saw um, two Who sets and saw all of Rich and saw all of Joe, Joe Cocker's band. Sure. And we got home around four th close to 5 in the morning, and my mom was ready to call the police on us. <laughs> yeah. And my brother asked my dad. Where are you guys? <laughs> exactly. My brother asked my dad. He said, Pop, was it loud? And <laughs> my dad said, it was like sticking your head in a jet engine. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the Who was a little loud. But I got to see Moon play. So, okay. So Buddy Rich's band played on the same ticket as The Who? Exactly. Now, oh, see, that's, that's here's what happened. That's cool. <laughs> um, Bill Graham, okay, who ran the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West, he started booking some of these bands with the Rock and Rollers, just as a very B.B. King, okay, started playing the rock clubs. And Rich, all of a sudden, Rich is playing these rock clubs, and these kids are digging it, and they start buying the records. Yeah. And they did the same thing with B.B. King. All of a sudden, he's playing the blues. All of a sudden, rather than just the blues clubs, okay, he's playing these rock and roll places, and everybody's loving it. And they start selling more records, and he's working more, and yeah. it's just one thing leads to another. Typical. But that was, that was the first time I saw him, and it was 
I have a drumstick. There was a pair of drumsticks. One of them was broken. I took the one that wasn't broke, and I still have it. And it was it was pretty nice. cool. It was <laughs> yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Yeah, you have so many so many fun stories. So that's uh, that's that's really interesting. May of '68. Um, this is like before. That's that's way before you started working mm-hmm. at. Uh, I didn't even have. I was still in. Ju- you know. Yeah, I didn't start working at Frank's till like '76. So, were you working at Frank's while you were going to school at was it DePaul? DePaul. Okay. For a, for for a short while. What did, what did you think of DePaul? Did you like it? It was great. Bob Tillis was great. The people there were outstanding. Derek Polk, my dear friend uh, and great great bass player, uh, I still keep in touch with him, and I still you know ended up working with him a lot late, years and years later. Um, there's. There's a couple other guys that were that were there. I know Mike Finnerty was there for a minute. I think John Avila, you know John, um, I think he was there for a brief minute too. But um, some of those guys went through the music program there and became really good jazz players. Sure. And Danny Serafini studied with uh, Bob Tillis. Um, the guy who played, I can't, I, I can't think of his name now. Um, the guy who played Bozo Circus in Chicago, he played um, Hammernick, Don Hammernick. Yeah, why? For some reason, I I know about that. We we got his drum set. That's could why. be. Yeah, yeah. Could we be. at one point we did, got his drum set. Did you get the timps, the the bowls with the stands? No. Clarence and I worked on those. I remember that. That was some... no, ju- just the drum set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was a while ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that. We we got his drum set, and it, it was a nice kit. I can't remember what what the make was, but the probably a Ludwig. I think he was a Ludwig. Think. Yeah. yeah that... Interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a small world. <laughs> and I remember Clarence, my dear friend Clarence Williams, and I when we were working for Bill Crowden in the middle eighties. Um, we went there and worked on the temps, and we changed some drum heads and did this and did that. And he had where where was it located? Bradley Place, not too uh, twenty five oh one West WGN. Okay. Okay, and that was not too far from. Was that was that like a syndicated show? Was no, it? no, no. It was just basically Chicago. Okay, because there was no cable then. Okay. There was no cable then, so WGN was WGN. How many, how many channels? <laughs> well, at the time, two, five, seven, and nine. Right. Okay. Um, CBS, NBC, ABC, and WGN Chicago, and then a little bit later on, um, WTTW Channel Eleven. Right. And then Channel Thirty Two a little bit later on, and Channel Forty Four. Chicago a little bit later on. Many less channels, but many more viewers per, per channel. Yeah, exactly. Because there was only you know there was only four of them for a long time. Yeah. And uh, I remember the Kennedy assassination. Um, I was just about to turn off the TV, and Walter Cronkite, Cronkite came on, and you know yeah. gave you this bulletin, and two five seven and nine, and even WGN, all that stuff was you know twenty four hours. So. Yeah, but but that's all that's all uh, that's all you had, right? Okay, and um, yeah, the the way information is disseminated has has really uh, changed so much mm-hmm. 
nowadays. And the same thing, same thing with radio. Hundreds of channels. Yeah. Same thing with radio. For a yeah. long time, it was just you know, AM, and then FM kind of comes in, and you started hearing better music. You started hearing you no know, commercials and no this and no that. And I remember finding um, WWF, one of the jazz channel, one of the jazz stations from Westchester. Count, B, Count BJ and some of those guys. And there was a one station that yep. I listened to at night, and it was all girls. All the, all the DJs were girls. Hmm. And one of them I remember was Yvonne Craig. Okay. Okay. And she worked at a couple other radio stations, and she was a jazz, a jazz buff. And she worked, and she, she was, you know, jazz things. She didn't do any rock and roll or any of that stuff. It was all jazz stuff. We went to see Buddy Rich at Airy Crown, my senior year in high school, and he was there with Tony Bennett. And Yvonne Craig was the MC, and she walked out with <laughs> she walked out with Buddy Rich, and you know they and she introduced him and gets a kiss, and he goes and sits down and plays and tantalizes everybody. I remember that that was pretty cool too. <laughs> nice. So, but when did uh, WDCB become the big Chicago jazz station? This guy was a drummer whose name escapes me now. And I don't know. Anyway, that that was that, local. It was lo- yeah, College of DuPage, right? Yeah, it right. was local for a long time. I mean, just very small, very, you know. Just, obviously, there's Bruce Oscar, but he came in before him. He, came, he came in not too long after. He, he's been there a long time. I remember I used to, my... Um, my mother used to drop me off uh, for preschool <laughs> right next to the, and this would be like 1980, uh, you know, probably 88, something okay. like that. Okay. This is when mm-hmm. I was really, really little, <laughs> maybe 89. Um, and she would drop me off for preschool uh, right next to the station. Okay. And she would say, yeah, she would be listening to it and she'd see him come out. Mm-hmm. Come out for a moment to get a breath of fresh air, and then go back inside. <laughs> he was he this guy. I can't remember his name. Um, excuse me. I just I can't remember this guy's name, but he was instrumental in getting WDCB at the college off the ground, and he was instrumental in hiring Bruce and some of the other people. Yeah, that yeah, the, basically that's made the biggest jazz. Yeah, that basically thing going made on it. These days. And essentially, <laughs> essentially, what area. happened was they stayed with it. They stayed with it, and they made it bigger and bigger and better and better. They hired some other people, and um, that's become like the spot. It's become the jazz station in Chicago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, they even, it's, they, I think they broadcast it in, in the city, and then there's like a uh, West West Loop, uh, you know, area where they they broadcast it everywhere. So yeah. It's, that I don't know. That I don't. I'm not sure, but um, I can't. I want to say this guy. No, that's not. His, it's not his name, but I can't remember. He was a drummer, okay? And I see him every once in a while in some of the jam sessions and some of the things going on around here, okay? Not in the city, around the suburban area. And he played good drums, and he was instrumental in basically getting WDCB off the ground. And Bruce Bruce has been there a long time. Yeah, He's been yeah. there a long time, and... He's the, he's the guy that I know. And <laughs> he's he's been instrumental in making that a much better place, and better music and making it adaptable to all these other things. Yeah, the for everyone listening, yeah, if if you're in Chicagoland, 
I don't know if they're going to start up again soon or if they've already started up, but the Manhattan's Jam session on Wednesdays. They they, yeah, they haven't no. started again, but no. at some point, maybe that'll they will that'll start up again. Yeah, we'll see. It, it will. They will. It'll take a while. Yeah. Um, I, I've been going to the the jams with them since I was about like maybe fifteen. I used to go to the Viking. Yep. And that might have been mm-hmm. probably wasn't the first time I met you though. I bet you the first time that I met you was at the drum pad. But yeah, let's let's get back to your history. So um, I think we kind of left off. You were um, in the city at DePaul, and mm-hmm. how did you get the gig at Frank's? I started going in there all the time. Right. Okay, <laughs> I wasn't the only one that used to hang out there, <laughs> but there was some guys that used to you know they'd stay there all day. And once you start working there, it's like, what are these guys doing here? And they're here all the time. And, you know, so I was trying not to be a pest or anything, but I'd end up talking to people and I'd end up talking to this one and that one. And every once in a while, some famous guy would come in and who's that? Well, it's so-and-so. He plays in this band or that's so-and-so. He plays in that band or, okay, that's Ricky Frigo. He plays at Mr. Kelly's. Really? Sure. (laughs) You know, so I just started going in there all the time and... I asked him. I got to know Sandy Gale, who was the manager at the time, and I asked him. And he said, we talked a little bit, and I told him I, you know, I was selling clothes and I have some retail experience. And after about three weeks of bandering with Marty, Marty LaShawn, can you come in tomorrow? Sure. So I started on a Saturday, and of course the place was really busy, and it was jumping, and Maury took me under his wing after a couple of days, and I want you to do this. I said, okay. And then uh, I started doing rentals. So during the week, I was in and out of the shop, um, basically spending a lot of time in the recording studios. In ways, it was great because I got to see all these great guys play. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I got to see this, you know, these great timpani players. I got to see Bobby Christian play. I got to see Tom Radke play. I got to see Don Simmons play. You know, I'd sneak into the booth. I was, oh, that was, after a while, they all knew me. That's the kid from Frank's Drum Shop. So I'd stand there off to the side, and, you know, I'm in the booth, and they're doing all this stuff, and I'm just sitting off to the side or standing off to the side and not saying anything but just listening and watching and seeing what's going on. Sure. Uh, Frankie, Larulo, Frankie Rulo, this great timpani player. This guy was fabulous. I saw him do three or four different things. Bobby Christian playing a whole bunch of percussion stuff. Tom so, Radke, it was great. So you guys did the like backline. You you provided the instruments for. What would happen is, if a rock band was doing a show and they wanted a six foot gong. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. We had three of them. We so we must have this. Yeah. So we'd run it out. Okay. <laughs> if um, it has to be at least six. At feet. least six you feet. Have Four, four feet ain't going to make it, you know. Five feet's not big enough, so it's got to be six foot. So we had three of them. We'd run them out. Okay. Where do you think those ended up? Um, well, one I know for sure. One I know for sure broke. Oh, okay. no. Was that your, no. your fault? No. <laughs> Did you break I, We delivered it, and it was actually it was the Doobie Brothers. And who made these? Was it? Peisty. Oh, okay. Hmm. Interesting. They were Peisty's. Um, Jeez, I can't some of the, the other ones, on those some of some of the other ones were, I'm not really sure. Some of them were kind of 
cheap Chinese gongs or something that Maury bought someplace. He saw it and bought it. Sure. Some of them were f great, and some of them were eh, not so good. But we were running those things. Um, <laughs> Frank's Drum Shop and Bill Crowden's Shop rented out all kinds of stuff, okay? Um, all the recording studios had drum sets. All of them had drum sets. Every once in a while, somebody would call me for a vibe, a xylophone, a marimba, um, a calliope, which is like that organ kind of thing. Okay. Um, we had, if you're a Chicagoan, you remember the Ham's Bear for the Ham's Bear commercials? Okay. Frank's Drum Shop had the original Ham's Bear Tom Tom. Yeah, you, you've told me this before. <laughs> and somebody would call, they'd want a certain kind of sound. Right. And I'd say, do you remember? And I'd mention that. And they'd say, you have that? Sure. <laughs> Can I rent that? Sure. I'll bring it over. Some of those listening may, may so, recognize. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. If you're, if you're a Chicagoan and you're older than 40 or so or 50, you'll probably remember that. And we rented all kinds of stuff. I had a guy come in. He wanted to do the entire sequence of the War of the Worlds. You know, the Wells thing. Mm -hmm. And I had marching guys, and I had sirens, and I had pop guns, and I had all kinds of stuff. And he rented, cool. he rented all these things from us to do that. He did that on radio. It's mm. pretty cool. I had a copy of it a long time ago. I don't know where it is now, but I did have a copy of it, so and it worked. Did, did you provide things for the, the orchestras and the, the... Every once in a while, you could see the back end... Of like the, the union stuff. Well, not so much them, but every once in a while, I would get a call to deliver something at Orchestra Hall. Or like lyric, you know, mm -hmm. opera. I take, I took some stuff to the lyric a couple of times, but um, I know Mike Folker's doing had been doing the lyric, and I can't remember that guy's name who was there for many, many years before him. They had a lot of his own stuff, but every once in a while, I would get a call to take something. A xylophone, a vibe, a marimba, a small gong, something to Orchestra Hall. They need, they wanted something. And I know that they had their own stuff, but every once in a while they needed something. Mm. So you could see when you came out of the elevator and walked down the hall, when you got on the street at Wabash Avenue, you could see the back end, the back entrance of Orchestra Hall from there. So I'd have to take it through the alley and go there. Yeah. And I got to play there once. For sure. <laughs> I had somebody call me for a drum set, and I had to supply a drum set. So I remember it was a small premiere set, and I took it over there. When I went to pick it up, there were some lights on. There was nobody in Orchestra Hall, so I sat down, and I played the drum set at Orchestra Hall for about 10 minutes. Then I put it away, put in a band. <laughs> so I got to play at Orchestra that Hall. nice, yeah, beautiful reverb. <laughs> yeah, it was great sound. Of course, there was nobody there but me, but that was okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that was all right. fun. But um, recording sessions, I was in and out of Universal, um, CRC, and Streeterville, and a couple other ones, but mostly... Universal on uh, Rush Street, off of Rush Street, Rush and Walton. Hmm. And then, yeah, like, tell tell some st other stories, just random stories about uh, um, Frank's, you know. And what, what years were you there for? From 76 till they closed. I went on the road with this band, and I came back. Marty gave me my job back like he did everybody. And I was in and out of there for a while. And what, what year did they, Frank, close? 81. 81. 
Um, you started, I remember the last summer I worked there was, I was in and out of there for, for a while. I worked for a while, played gigs, and he'd asked me to come back, and they were having some trouble. Yeah, and there was... Do you know why exactly? I know some people money. say it was like his son, maybe. He just ran that business into the ground. That's what that's what people say. What you know? was it that or? Um, maybe maybe he just happened to take over at a time the business was kind of naturally. The, the, did he like? Was he like it, never there? It did he was, never do anything? It was starting to change. Because you you um, were there, right? So. Yeah, and this is the beginning of Guitar Center. Okay, in the beginning of these places that were massively discounting everything. Mm-hmm. And even though Frank's was an established place and you can get anything there, percussion-wise or drum set-wise, if you needed parts, um, timpanis or whatever whatever it was, you could get anything there. Right. Um, it was still tough to compete with those guys. So kind of the old model was just... Starting to wear through. Yeah, and, and then these really big, big store, and that, that that kind of happened to all retail. It seems like all of the mind, mm-hmm. almost all, all of them, almost almost all of them, out. you know, were gone. And nobody cares. Nobody. Everyone was just like, yeah, whatever. And then mm-hmm. um, the now we're getting to the point, which is, yeah, it's so much later that now now even anything that's brick and mortar is now being wiped out at all. Yeah, well, now we're to the point where sure. everything is online. So it just, yeah, that's America for you. It just keeps on going. Just well, keeps on changing. That that's supposedly supposedly that's supposed to be progress. Yeah, we'll we'll see what so happens. We'll see what happens. But um, maybe we'll have uh, you know space colonies and <laughs> someday, someday. <laughs> if if that is that's how it ends up, uh, you know. Bill Crowden. Then Bill, again, maybe we'll be fighting with sticks and yeah. stones. And <laughs> Bill Crowden ran up against the same thing. World War Four. Um, even though he had everything there, and he was—he basically picked up that rental business that when Frank's closed the doors, Bill started doing all those rentals. And Clarence Williams and I, my dear buddy, we did a lot of those. We were in and out of CRC, and um, Universal moved to another place, smaller. And I remember being there a few times, and my dear friend Dean Myers, his wife worked there for a long time, Lenny. Lainey Katz-Myers, and um, all of a sudden I remember she called me and she said, they're closing, they're closing their doors. So Universal shrank and shrank and shrank, and then they ended up closing their doors. And I think um, a really good place like Bill's, um, he ran up against stiff competition, and that's one of the things that happened at the drum pad. When uh, the drum pad, uh, he basically developed a really good business, and for a while, in the 90s, he was the only game in town. So if you were a working drummer, if you were a teacher, you were a percussionist, you were playing mallets or whatever, this was the only place you could get mallets yeah. or sticks or every, anything. Every business has its heyday and, and nothing lasts yeah, forever. that's right. The, the Roman Empire, it didn't last forever. Mm-mm. lasted really, really long time, but even no, no matter how well it's designed. That's right. But yeah, it, it's funny, on, on Wabash, that area, do you remember uh, Central Camera? Yeah, sure. I believe that place may even to this day I think it still is. be. I think it's still there. That's like the only business mm-hmm. that's on that whole. And I, I have a friend who worked there uh, whose, whose father is actually a, a pretty well-known bass player. Okay. Who actually, he gave us the piano we have in the studio right really? now. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, 
Great, great guy, and yeah, great, great family. And I think that's. I think that's the only one that's still in the Exchequer pub. You can, yeah, yeah. The Exchequer right. still I, there. I, I know the people who own that place too. Actually, <laughs> um, he. I went. To, I went to college with uh, their their son. Yeah, yeah um, and then yeah, it's funny that that whole Wabash line, mm-hmm. um, that whole place. Yeah, the, those would be the only two left. You can see pictures of yep. with the old Chicago trolleys. Right. Moving down where the camera's there. Well, <laughs> yeah. what happened was Wabash story. Avenue was two way, and when they made it when they made Wabash Avenue a one way, and there was all this construction, all the businesses there just yeah, yeah really suffered and really died, and that's when Bill ended up moving eighteen blocks west. So yeah, how, how so? How did this whole thing happen? So you had Frank's Drum Shop, right? Mm-hmm. You had Frank's Drum Shop. You worked there, but right. then. Drums Limited. Drums Limited. He was, Frank's was 226, Drums Limited was 218. And uh, I remember, I used to go in there and buy stuff. When Frank's went out, everybody that was going to Frank's went to Bill's. Cause he so was, Bill Crown, he worked for Maury LaShawn. He did work for Maury LaShawn back in the late 50s. Maury bought that place in like 56. It's really interesting because this, this in, in the Chicago drum shop scenes, this seems to be something that repeats itself over and over and over again. <laughs> There's always someone who works for and then becomes, you know, pretty well mm-hmm. and they think, oh, I can do this better. And then they move on. And they exactly. They open their own place. Which I so, guess it's not only in, you know, it's, it's pretty much everywhere these things happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine that in almost any kind of business, somebody's working for somebody. Sometimes they make you sign things that, in, in the yeah. corporate world. Well, look at the musicians. Look at the musicians. <laughs> you can't copy what we're doing. <laughs> you know, uh, well, when I'm, I'm not going to do this when I get my band. Okay, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do to you what you did to me. You know, I'm not going to treat my musicians like this. So all these musicians that are eventually becoming band leaders, they all ended up working for somebody. Okay, and then they open their own place. Like Gene Krupa said, I opened my own shop. Mm-hmm. So he had his own band, and he could call the shots, and he could do pretty much what he wanted because he was paying everybody. You know, same thing with Buddy Rich and Louis Belson and all these guys. Yeah, as long so, as you keep everyone entertained. As long as you keep everyone entertained, yeah, yeah, as long as you keep the them streets. working and they're, everybody's making some money, it's okay. So you, you worked at Drums Limited as well. Mm-hmm. Did you work at the one that was on Wabash, or I think that you may have worked at the later one? I worked at both of them. Oh, okay. And um, Wabash Avenue was cool. It was, the Franks had to dry it up, and essentially what happened was um, I started going in there. Clarence got a job there. Mm-hmm. He called me one night, and he said, Bill needs some help, this and this and this. Two guys left. He said, I told him about you. He knows who you are. He said, come in tomorrow and talk to him. He'll hire you. I said, you sure? He said, trust. He said, yeah, he'll hire you. So I went down there the next day, and I talked with him for a while. And he said, I need you to take a physical. And I went, okay. (laughs) And I started like two days later, something like that. And I worked for him for two years on Wabash Avenue. And I still would go in there every once in a while and pick up something and this and that. Um, when he moved to Jefferson Street, uh, actually that was great because it was right down the street from Lou Mitchell's, this restaurant that was really good. Um, I walked in there one time. So Jefferson a, is? 17, 18 blocks west of Wabash, two blocks west of Canal Street, so you're on the other side of the river. 
Okay, so right now, that area would be... By, by presidential towers. So it's almost like, it's kind of close to Greektown. Just east um, of Greektown. Because the highway, if you go west of the highway, it's like the Greek, Greektown you're, area. Is the building still there that they were in? Yeah. Um, it's... Really? Because they've turned almost everything it's, down it's, around there. It's west of Greek. It's... East of Greektown. If it's presidential towers are just east, because that, that's where if, if you get off on Ogilvy, which used mm-hmm. to be Union it Station, or, no, it used um, to be Northwestern Station, which is now Ogilvy. It's it's north. It's a little bit north of Greektown and a little bit west of Greektown. It's close. Yeah. Okay. So it's a little bit. I've never I've never really pinpointed quite where that shop was. <laughs> um, it was Jefferson Street. The building's um, still there, though. Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Somebody. Oh yeah. Somebody still there had a big storefront, had a big glass storefront. Hmm. And um, the one that one thing that was cool about that place was he had a garage to keep the van in. Did did he own it still, Maury? No, Bill Crowden. Or sorry, Bill. Yeah. yeah. Did, mm-hmm. did did Bill still own the place when they moved? Yeah. And so they got. Did they leave Wabash because of the construction and just the congestion around there? Well. I remember going down. That's there. like an end of an era, man. So many of my customers, they they come in here and they're just like, I remember the sound of the L train yep. and being there and just going <laughs> into the shop. And it was so great, and that's one of the reasons people really liked Maxwell Drums because when we started, we were we were down there in the Fine Arts Building. Mm-hmm. You got a little bit of the same same experience. thing. Same thing. We um, wish we could still be down there, but the I mean, there's it's. Ten times the amount of uh, expense, and then uh, ten times more difficult to move anything anywhere. Yep. You, you park, you, you leave your car in the street for five seconds, and you got a cop giving you a ticket, or getting towed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's so many. Mm-hmm. I, I I had an experience. I was on State Street, and uh, I was giving. Uh, I, I I drove, and I I stopped, and I literally like five feet away from me. <laughs> I was giving a guy. Uh, a bunch of music because we mm-hmm. were playing something for my senior recital and he was a trombone player and I saw him in the street I ran out of the car two bike cops came up on my car I ran back to the car the one guy almost he basically drew his gun on me <laughs> and he's yeah. like don't don't be running it's like this is my car he's like oh okay and then they gave me like a $500 ticket okay great thanks guys mm-hmm. alright I'm going to move somewhere that's, else yep that's Chicago <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, Chicago you know, come on man yeah I, I, don't get me wrong I love the city but it's just like those are the kinds of things that happen there yeah it, it's it's unbelievable hey I'll, I'll go down there every now and then no matter what happens I'm going to get some kind of a ticket <laughs> you know if I it's park about right. they're going to find some way that's about <laughs> no right no matter what happens Let's, let's see. Um, when I drove the van at Frank's Drum Shop, you'll like this. Um, when you came out of the door at Frank's, that's long hallway, and you went through the door, and there's a sidewalk. Right in front there was one of these boxes that they used to keep salt in and shovels and stuff for, for, for the winter, and there was a fire hydrant right there. Mm-hmm. And there was these two guys, uh, Starkey. Starkey? Was it Starkey? Star, I, I think it was Starkey and Dominic. One guy was Irish, one guy was Italian. <laughs> and Starkey was a sergeant. He walked up and down. That was his beat. Oh, they're and police officers. They're cops. <laughs> and the other guy was uh, on a bicycle, on a motorcycle with the helmet and the thing, you know, the big white thing. Sure. And 
I'd pull up in front. I had to go up there and get a vibe. I'm taking it to Universal. Hey, man, is it okay if I go up there? Just don't take all day. I said, okay, and I'd run up there and, you know, and I never got a ticket. So every time I had to do that, I had to park or double park, and he was around. I said, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I remember Maury every year at Christmas time, they get a bottle with an envelope attached to it. And there was a thank you card with some money in that envelope. Okay. Um, the old guy that used to run this, run, I called it the cage at the Conrad Hilton. I'd, you know, I'd get a call, somebody's playing at the Conrad Hilton and I'd have to deliver, oh man, I remember sometimes it was so tough. I'd have to deliver a vibe and a xylophone and a drum set and two temps, okay? And sometimes I could leave it right there. And this old guy, he ran the cage. So I could leave that stuff in there. I didn't have to go down here, down here, down here, down here, and all that stuff. I'd leave it there. Mm. I know, those guys are coming Saturday. Leave it here. Okay. And then I'd go back over there Monday morning and pick it all up, and there it is. Okay. And he got a bottle with an envelope. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Uh, Martino at uh, Airy Crown. He got an envelope. All these guys that were helping me out. And Maury would sit with me. Okay. Tell me about your rentals. Tell me who's helping you out. Who's not? Who's giving you a hard time? Who gets a present at Christmas time? Is what that was. So yeah. he had his own little sheet, and everybody got a present, along with a bottle of some really good scotch or some really good whiskey, and some <laughs> cash. So it's a big help to me as long as I didn't take advantage of it. And those guys were helping me out. So, you know, and he told me. Good deal. <laughs> and he told me, don't be a pest to those guys. Help them out; they'll help you out. Okay. Yeah, and I, and it's definitely kind of a, a way to shake to, your hands and do business in the city. Yeah, that's to, right. To that's make the way everything works. That's like right. That, yeah. that's the way Chicago just, works. Yeah, my, my experience. Yeah, I, I, I have so many. Just yeah, I, I used to live on Ashland and Fullerton, mm -hmm. and we we lived in the alley. We were in a coach house, right? Yeah, and uh, we had all these garbage cans. The, the entire neighborhood, because we were like rental properties, mm -hmm. and then north of us there were a bunch of owners. Right. They would just take all their garbage cans and just <laughs> yeah. put them in front of our house. Mm -hmm. And they'd take all their rubbish and just throw them in our garbage cans. And so then yeah. all the rats would then come to our neighborhood. And I, I almost had to get in like a fist fight with this guy in the, in the alley. <laughs> just about, it's like, yeah. this is illegal what you're doing. Like you take your garbage cans and you put them on your property. Because it's your your yeah. rubbish. Like, what, right. what's going on here? And I would wake up like 7 a.m. And this guy would be just like, just yep. after I had, yeah, man. Just all this stuff. When, when, you, when you get a lot of people that are just in a really small space. At Chicago. It, it just, yeah, it creates a lot of. Um, <laughs> tension. Know, yeah, tension. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it can be really unpleasant. It can sometimes. be really bad. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why. one of the things I don't miss. What I do miss is the. The really great music, the yeah. the really wonderful food, and it's a it's it's a beautiful city. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's, there's, there's a lot of wonderful people, and yeah, there's a lot of really really good things. There's a lot of great things in <laughs> Chicago, and a lot of great people, and this this goes um, for like pretty much every city. I that's think. true. But mm -hmm. Anyone who's lived in uh, <laughs> the things I'm talking about, they probably sure. <laughs> 
there, there was a bit. there was uh, when when Clarence and I were working for Bill. You'll like this. Um, I believe that um, I don't know whether he gave them to Bill or not, but Ludwig was distributing Peisty for a number of years, and I remember we. I didn't move those, but I remember those got those things being at Wabash Avenue. And later on, they were at um, um, on Jefferson Street. But I remember um, <laughs> I took a rental. when This was still when we were on Wabash Avenue. There was a building uh, that was built, an office building that had been rejuvenated. And they had this big, huge atrium. And they had Chinese cherry trees. And this, it, the motif was Chinese. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this young lady calls me, and she wanted to know if I had anything Chinese. And I said, oh, have I got a thing Chinese for you? (laughs) Percussion-wise? So there's this six-foot gong with the Chinese writing on it. Okay? Yeah. (laughs) So she said, and I told her about it, and she said, okay, we'll do it. Can you bring it over here tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock, this and this and this? Yeah, okay. So this is how much it's going to cost you, which was a lot. Because we had to rent a truck because it wouldn't fit in the van. Yeah. Okay. So to make sure that the thing worked and the stand worked, okay, Clarence and I, we did this more than once. He'd get on his knees, and I'd, I'd, I'd crawl over here on him. He'd lift it up, and I'd lift it up, yeah. okay, to put it on the stand, okay? And the mallet was about this big, and it was about like that. It's like a little baseball bat. So this is a drum's limit. Mm-hmm. So did did he buy Frank's gongs? No, I don't know. I like I said, I think I think Mr. Ludwig gave him all that stuff. Oh, okay. okay. They had a good relationship. So well And this would be not B three, B This was Will WFL two. Well, Bill Crowden married Mr. Ludwig's daughter. So yeah, he he had a good relationship with Mr. Ludwig. Okay. And um, I, I, like I said, I don't know if he gave those or what, but we had. Yeah, th- this is fa- family stuff I, I don't even know about. <laughs> this, this was, we had almost every size symphonic gong that Peisty made. And I remember this this 28-inch symphonic so wait, Bill, gong. Bill Crowden married. Uh, Brooke Ludwig. So, so Bill Crowden is, how does the family line go? Is is B three? B three is Brooke's brother. Ah, B, okay, okay, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. Bill Ludwig the okay. third. Okay, he's my age. Right, right. Okay, okay. Um, we're we're gonna get B three in here one of these days. Uh, I mean, we were supposed to do it, but then uh, actually, I I broke my ankle. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's actually the whole reason he, he was gonna come come down, and then he called me the day after I did it, mm-hmm. which was okay. the day we were gonna do it. And I was like, hey man, I cannot, I cannot <laughs> sure. make it to the shop. I can't make it out of my bed right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, interesting. But, um, I I didn't know that. No, no one's ever yeah. told me that before. Huh. And essentially. We had small, all these small world again. Yeah. yeah, we had all these gongs, and I remember I, I put a stand together and I took this twenty-eight inch symphonic gong. I had it on a stand. I put it off to the side. Every time I walked by it, smack it. This thing sounded great. I was one of these. I'm thinking I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy this, <laughs> and sure enough, I sold it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I sold it. 
right? But it was the one, somebody wanted a gong, and somebody was talking to me. I took a call, and I said, I got this 28-inch. I said, this thing sounds terrific. Trust me, this thing, this is what you want. So you sold the 28-inch gong to somebody? Unfortunately for me, I did. Yeah, I, so, I, I don't think I'd ever be able to do that. Boy, did that thing sound good. But, <laughs> but what happened was we ended up taking this six-footer, and we put it on the stand, and I warmed the thing up, okay, like this, because you have to warm it up. So it just starts moving a little bit. And I just hit it like that off-center. And this thing in the hallway at Frank's, this thing sounded like a 747 taken off. This thing, it was great. <laughs> yeah. So we took it over there, and we set the thing off off to the side, and she asked me to play it, so I, I played it. And everybody started <laughs> clapping, and I okay, that's sure. cool. We were there for about an hour and a half, okay? And I can't remember what we charged them, some ridiculous amount of money, only because we had to rent a truck, we had to do it. And this, is, this instrument was like $40,000. Okay, and but boy, what a sound! What a sound! I don't know what happened to those. Yeah, they're probably still around somewhere. If I mean, somebody's got them, okay, somebody's got them. They're they're in some school maybe an or orchestra. Some, something, something. Yeah. But boy, you know that six footer. What a sound! Just beautiful. I wouldn't want to have have the responsibility of trying to sell that when a shop goes out of business. It's that, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you're looking at a college or a university, a symphony, um, some big orchestra. It's amazing that they had the disposable cash to or some rock band. Yeah. To so so when you were when you were at at like <laughs> bless me. you twice when you were when you were at the um, hmm. Frank's and the. Um, the other shop, Drums uh, Limited. Drums Limited. Mm -hmm. What what was the thing that you guys sold? Like what, what was what was the like the best seller? And I know you you were a little more involved in the in the stuff that had that that was like, um, you know, like providing instruments for 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 people. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, do, do do you know what what they? Well, what was their bread and butter? Okay, one of the things. The drum business and the drum set world was changing, okay? And essentially what happened was um, on Wabash Avenue, like in Frank's Drum Shop, there was no such thing as entry level, okay? So you had Gretsch, Ludwig, Slingerland, Rogers, Camco. There was what they made, okay? It was just like the good, good stuff. Th that's they, it. What about like, they, they did have like student level. They had like pioneer snare drums, right? Like. Did never, they just, never, you guys didn't stock never, that stuff? Never saw them. Mm -hmm. Never saw them. If somebody wanted one, they'd get them one. They'd order it. Sure. But there was a wall of snare drums, and they were either the moderates or the upper levels. Mm -hmm. um, there was no such thing as entry level. We started seeing some of that at Bill's in the middle 80s. So it was kind of like, it was almost like a, it was a boutique. It was like you go there and you get like the best stuff. You go there, and if you were a drummer, and you wanted a Dynasonic, there was Dynasonics there. You wanted a Buddy Rich model snare drum, there was three or four of them there. You and then want, if you want like some real cheap stuff, you go to like Sears or something. So, well, if you wanted something inexpensive or if you couldn't spend 800 900 or $1,000 or more on a drum set, okay, you went to like where my dad bought mine. I had a, my first drum set was 
Delray at Lombard Music. Oh, Lombard. cool. I was going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You paid $110 for it. And it was a I've tournament. heard of Delray, I think. Okay. Tysco. Were, were they, they were probably made in Japan, maybe? They were made in Japan, and they were Tysco. Tysco had okay. Delray and Tysco guitars. Right. Okay. And that, that may have been made in the like proto Pearl factory, possibly. I know a possibly. lot of those early Japan ones, they were kind of just all made in this. Well, yeah. there was this one factory. We get those in here every now and then. <laughs> there was this one factory in Taiwan, and there was three floors. And Max Wind, something else, and something else were made in that factory. Okay? And a friend of mine, Claudio Infocino, became, <laughs> it became a Max Wind endorser. My dad used to know a guy named Claudio. Okay? And cool name. The first floor was Max Wind. The second floor was something else, and the third floor was something else. But the, all the parts were interchangeable. Hmm. So if they needed something, they'd go to another floor and get the parts and make it and do whatever they needed to do. Hmm. So... And that was Telefonong, I believe, something like that. And that was, they were in Taiwan. And all these, in, no, that was at the time um, around 78, 79, 80, 81, when you had this influx of cheap Japanese drums. For the simple reason is, like, you know, my dad couldn't afford, you know, an expensive Slingerland set or a Roger set. He, he told me. I just can't do that, but I can do this. Sure, and okay. that was similar in many, many industries. Sure. Yeah. So um, this guy, Fred Zack at Lombard, he had inexpensive things. And I remember there was a Pearl there, and he had this Delroy Tysco, and he had this other stuff. And at the time, those were inexpensive, starting at $100 and working their way up to three or 400 and that was about it. Mm -hmm. He had a Roger set in the window, and eventually somebody bought that. And then he had a Slingerland set in the window. Somebody bought that. But most of the stuff that he sold drum-wise was the inexpensive stuff. But I remember I bought Ludwig drumsticks there. And I bought... So Frank's wasn't like that, though. Frank's mm -hmm. just sold all the, the well, high-end well, stuff. Well, they didn't... They, you know, all, they, all they sold was Ludwig and Gretsch and Slingerland. And they didn't make anything cheap. And was Drums Limited kind of the same? They probably exactly. had to migrate a little bit over. Well, to you know what happened was starting like in the like I said in the in the early '80s, you had a you had an influx of some of this lesser lesser priced Japanese stuff, and the first one, right, the first one was the Tama Rockstar, right, <laughs> and the Pearl Export. Yeah. Okay. Everyone. Yeah. The, I was talking to um, Daniel from uh, Forks. And uh, yeah, he's he said everyone, including you know, like everyone has owned a Pearl Export at some point in well, their life. Everyone, including you, your brother, your sister, your mother, everybody has owned well, a Pearl Export drum set at some point in their primarily, life. Primarily, primarily, they got it from someone. Or, yeah, yeah, primarily because they were inexpensive. Yeah, and they weren't bad. They were okay, and they've gotten better over the years. Um, Tama did something that was really smart. They took the Imperial Star, and the Rock Star was basically just a cheaper version of the Imperial Star. The drum shell was mahogany, and it was the same drum shell. The hoops and lugs were cheaper. Instead of 10 lugs on a 22-inch bass drum, they put eight. Yeah. Okay, stuff like that. But the thing is, if you put good heads on one of these Rock Stars, those things sounded really good. Now, you know where the best climate is? 
New Mexico. New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, New Mexico. You know why? It's hot. It's moderate. It's New, New Mexico? New Mexico, primarily because when it gets hot there, there's no humidity. Yeah. And dry, if, dry heat can be weird, though. Dry, dry heat will give you, like, nosebleeds and stuff. Well, if you want to get a suntan, that's the best place to go because you just bake. <laughs> yeah, okay. like, a, like a turkey. That's yeah, right. You just sure. bake in the sun. And I went to school in New Mexico for a year, and I'll tell you, man, you know, um, the climate. The only bad thing about it is you can't just take your shoes off and lay in the grass because there's all these things that crawl. And, <laughs> you know, it's they're poisonous. Oh, man, yeah. But uh, snakes and spiders and tarantulas and scorpions and stuff. That's, I'm always afraid yeah. someone's going to deliver us a scorpion in a box. I was just thinking about that last night. Tarantulas, tarantulas aren't... They're not that poisonous. No, they're not that poisonous, and they only do it... They only attack you if you... Actually, the funny thing is, them. some of the most terrifying spiders are up here. They're mm-hmm. just really small ones. The brown recluse mm-hmm. and the black widow. That's right. And the violin spider... In, up in Michigan, yeah, hor- horrifying little little buggers. <laughs> but anyways, so yeah, Paul, back to um, the uh, you know the the podcast here. Yeah, so you um, you made the move from Frank's Drum Shop to. Uh, drums Limited. Drums Limited. And mm-hmm. then we, we talked a little bit about how it Drums Limited then moved west. Um, and and with, with with Frank's, you were involved mostly with, like, basically backline stuff, providing stuff for people. What, we had, what I had to do was um, there were times when I'd get a call or they'd, here, it's a rental, it's for you. Right, rentals, yeah. Yeah, and um, there were times when I had to like literally just stop and take care of it because somebody needed something at one of the studios or somebody needed something for some appearance or some performance tonight, and okay, and you just take care of it. Right. And uh, sometimes three or four in the afternoon, I got a call. Uh, when, when is when is your session tomorrow? Well, the session's at eleven o'clock, and it's not for much. So I could do that in the morning. But every once in a while, I got a call uh, at 3.30 in the afternoon for a 9 a.m. session. So I'd have to jump and, like, take care of it right then and there. Okay? Mm-hmm. So um, it depends. It would depend on what what was needed and where and all that other stuff. And was that the same for uh, Drums Limited? Exactly. In both locations? Exactly the same. Primarily because when Frank's basically closed up, Bill, Bill, you know, uh, he nabbed all that rental work. And uh, there were times when Clarence and I were in the van every day delivering something. It, was, it wasn't as much, okay? I didn't have to take, like, six tons of stuff, okay? But with two guys, you had, you know, you had to have two guys to take a vibe, right. take two temps, um, things like that. And you had to be careful because those things were fragile. When Frank closed, did, did Drums Limited absorb a bunch of their stuff? Or I don't know exactly. No. Um, the lady who was... They, they weren't on the best of terms. The lady who was the bookkeeper at Frank's, this lady, Jill Mihailovich, she bought Frank's Drum Shop through the courts as a bankrupt business. Hmm. I don't know exactly what the terms were. So they, their numbers were, like, really bad. 
like they well he filed chat he first he filed chapter nine then he filed chapter 10 then he filed chapter 11 i I don't it know how probably that been works. a while that so, yeah, it but been she bought it through the courts, and and nothing had been moved out of there. Okay, what was left was there at two twenty six on the fourth floor, and she bought it through the courts, and there was not much left. And who, who was it who bought it? Jill Mihailovich. Okay, she was the bookkeeper. Uh, she had been for the shop for mm-hmm. quite a while. And she bought. So she it was their accountant. Yeah, she was basically just a bookkeeper. Okay. Okay. Somebody owes you money. She knew about it. You sure. know, stuff like that. She was the bookkeeper. She bought <clears throat> that business through the courts. And what happened was, um, there was stuff. <laughs> okay, that's the best way for me to explain it. There was just parts of stands, parts of this, parts of that. It was just stuff okay hardly any drums were left no temps no mallet instruments none of that stuff was there all that stuff had been sold off it was bits and pieces screws and nuts and bolts and pieces yeah and that stuff was taken to somewhere in the near north side and i remember um i helped her out with that and i took a couple of my drum buddies over there because this garage was full of this drum stuff. So any any of my drum friends, they'd call me and I'm looking for a part for this or a part for that. And I'm thinking, do I remember what, you know, I try to remember. That stuff would be worth a lot of money nowadays. And exactly. And I don't know exactly what happened after that. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that stuff is still there. I don't know if she sold it. I don't know if she gave it away. If she threw it away, I have no idea. But that stuff is worth something. Yeah. <laughs> because primarily because there's okay old stands like that okay and somebody needs a top somebody needs the screws somebody yep. needs this somebody needs that there, there was a time in 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 the 1990s and 2000s where you you really couldn't find a stand that didn't weigh like like 35 pounds <laughs> That's right and mm-hmm. during that time, those old stands became just like, okay, yeah, that's what people who are actually running around playing these silly little gigs want. And uh, <laughs> and then and then everyone got hip to that, and now they're like everyone's making the now they all light. make light stuff. Yeah, but but for a long time, you know, I don't want to carry three cymbal stands that weigh forty pounds. Yeah. Okay. And, and some of those old stands, like the Ludwig ones, the old Ludwig flat base stands. They have these little, um, these little tiny rubber feet mm-hmm. that have not disintegrated somehow, and they're they're in perfect shape yeah. nowadays. The 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 Rogers ones, some of them are better than others. The the, the little boots fall off sometimes, but yeah, it's amazing. They, they last forever. One you of the things <laughs> one of the things that we did at Frank's Drum Shop, the guys would come in. This is really funny. Um, all these guys were buying these Rogers thrones, and the Rogers throne had a rounded top, okay, rather than being flat. And for some reason, I don't know if this actually was, or but for some reason or another, I know of three guys that bought these Rogers thrones, and ended up with hemorrhoids. <laughs> oh no! Okay. Yeah. And the other thing was, what we found out was, 
we didn't have rubber feet that were big enough because the bases were thicker. Sure. Okay? And they were hollow. But the plastic top from a bottle of cold duck would fit in there there, and they were real heavy plastic. And we told the guys, buy three bottles of cold duck, put them in there, it'll work. Hmm. Yeah, that works. Stuff like that. <laughs> the other thing that happened was um, you could not put a Speed King pedal on a non-Ludwig drum. Okay? Two reasons. Number one, the casting was shaped for a wider hoop. And in the day, Ludwig, in the day of calf heads, everybody was tucking their own heads, and they, were, they would get really low. So in the advent of plastic heads, all the companies started making a narrower, narrower hoop. Mm-hmm. Ludwig didn't do that. Okay, they still made a real wide hoop. And that casting for that bass drum pedal fit on the Ludwig hoop. But when you put that on a narrower hoop, a Gretsch or a Slingerland, that rocker arm would rub up against the head, and eventually the head, it would go through the head. Right. So what we did at Frank's Drum Shop... I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. What we did at Frank's Drum Shop, Marty got like 15 or 20 of these steel rods that were chrome-plated like a cowbell post. And we cut them and we sanded them down the edges and you'd put that between the hoop and the pedal. And it moved it about that much. Oh, nice. So it moved <laughs> it away. Ludwig came out with a, a package of plastic things that moved it. But the plastic things would break. Yeah, <laughs> metal's always better. Okay, so metal was always better. So we were selling those at two bucks a, two bucks a pop or something like that. <laughs> cool. So, you know. Yeah. And Wuhan symbols. Um, Marty met this guy. His name was Bruce something or other. I don't remember. He was a steward on an airline that operated out of Singapore. So he was going to all these outdoor markets and buying these funny-shaped symbols. And they looked really cool because they had Chinese writing on them. They had the, the hammer marks. And I remember Clarence had a 24-inch one on his wall. It looked really cool. Okay, and of course, some of them sounded great. Some of them didn't sound so good. But I remember we got a crate full. We must have got like 40 symbols. And he was spending just a couple of bucks for each one. And then I can't, we were selling them relatively cheap. And I remember Neil, Neil Pert came in and bought two of them from me. Uh, a couple of other guys did too. And I remember that one day when Mel Lewis was there, he played on some, and we had some prototypes of the Mel Lewis knocker. The bigger bell, the, the turned up edge, the swish knocker, and all the rivets. We had four or five prototypes mm. that, that Zildjian had sent us. And when Mel came in, I remember, yeah, I got, they're in the back. You want to try these? And he was banging on them, and that was cool. He walked out with do, two of them. Do you remember the old K's at Frank's? We'd get those by the crate. Yeah, that. Okay. And with the plastic bags and the straw and everything, we'd get them by the crate. We get twenty or thirty symbols, uh, you know, at, at a time, and those were put on. You know, he took them out of the bags. Those were put in, the, in this one spot, and some of the guys, a lot of the guys, you know, if I would have known what I know now, okay, I would have bought every single one of them. But um, some of them, hindsight is twenty twenty. Exactly, some of them were great, and some of them were not so good, and some of them were not good <laughs> at all. They were just very inconsistent. And some of the guys that were... That's what makes them so special. Yeah, they're they're all, like, 
very unique, made by hand. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, th this is probably during the 70s. Eight, like, they were still made in Turkey. They were still yeah, they were still distributed like late, by Gretsch. Late seventies, um, and so they, yeah. One of the things about those old K's, they used to make the bells. They would actually pound the bells mm -hmm, in with mm -hmm. a like hammer, and that's what made them just so in imperfect. Yeah, which is one of the things that just gives them. They're all so unique, and the holes sometimes were off center. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, you know. the truth is every symbol. The hole is never, there's, there's, it's never perfect. Mm -hmm. No, and they're small. If you, if you lay the symbol, you always realize that, like, mm -hmm. but then again, yeah, it, it, there's never perfection. Yeah, it, it, it's always just, there's always just a little bit of a, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, that, that can have to do with a lot of different factors. And some guys, there were times when we had some symbol stands there, and there were guys that would come in and play them, and sometimes the there would be somebody there for three hours. Yeah. And he'd play every single one. And sometimes the guy would walk in, he'd play for five minutes, and he'd, he'd buy one. Yeah, we, we had a guy here yesterday who, who was so. for about three hours playing cymbals. Mm -hmm. He bought a couple, though. He actually bought one of my old uh, splash cymbals, which has been here forever. And they, and, were, uh, yeah. they, they, were, they were inconsistent. We bought those from Gretsch. <laughs> and I do have an old K. Zildjian plastic bag. Yeah. Okay. I I have to ask you. Well, oh, that that's cool. You should send me a picture of it. Okay. I'll put I'll put it on the on, on the uh, the I I may have like one or two of those uh, here, but yeah, yeah, send me a picture of it. I'll I'll, okay. I'll put it on the the, uh, the the YouTube version of the podcast. But I have to ask you. So so do you so? Okay. So drums limited. You you worked there for a while, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, was it just a straight shot? Like, were, were you always employed working at drum shops when you moved on to uh, um, the drum pad? What, did you just move straight there? No, or was it no. It was sometimes I was not employed at all. Sometimes I was busy playing gigs. Sure. Um, what, what kind of gigs were you, were you well, playing? Did, were you one, ever in, like, a band, or was it always one of the just things? Kinda... One of the things that happened was... Um, I was I was very flattered actually. This was I worked for Bill when he moved. Um, I had left Bill's, and I was just playing some gigs here and there, not doing much. And I knew he moved back to, I moved to Jefferson Street, and I went in there once or twice and talked to him. So and I, did he know, move again? Jefferson Street. Th this from is the Wabash second. Avenue. From Wabash Avenue right, to right. Jefferson Street. Okay, so the, the, okay. Yeah, Drums Limited was just one move. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you, you stayed with him in the move for a little while. No, no. I did, I was, when he made the move, I was not working for him. Oh, okay. I see. And I remember there again, Clarence called me and he said, he needs some help. He says, it's not cool here. Things are falling apart here. He needs some help. And I said, well, he said, if you walk in, he's going to offer you a job. So I went, eh, eh, I don't know. So what happened was, okay, um, I had auditioned with this girl singer, Mimi Lang, and my old friend, Ken Habick, great bass player, who still lives in Chicago. Um, this was like the last of the good gigs, full-time gigs in Chicago. The absolute last one, Fairmount Hotel. 
And okay. what happened was um, everybody and everybody's grandmother auditioned for this lady. Okay. Uh, Joy Dickens was the booking agent. She booked that room. Mm-hmm. It was uh, the Metropole was the bar. It was an L-shaped, really cool little bar. And it was just enough room for a piano, upright bass, and a small drum set. And um, we auditioned. Actually, Ken and I auditioned. We, we weren't going to take a chance. We auditioned with two different girls, so we wanted the gig. So I happened to go into the Bill's shop, and we're talking, and he goes, Paul, I want to talk to you. I'm in my office. And I thought, oh, God, what did I do? Did I say something wrong? What, you know, <laughs> Can't possibly I, imagine. You know, I thought, what did, I, did I do something wrong? So <laughs> he said, have a seat. And I'm like, oh, God, now what? And he said, well, uh, what's your situation? And I told him about auditioning. And I said, this is going to be six nights a week. This is going to be Monday through Saturday. It's, the money's going to be good. I said, you know, I said, this is a five-star hotel. This is a tuxedo job. And I said, I hope we get it. And he said, how would you feel about working here during the day? I about fell over. And I was very surprised. And he said, things are tough here. He said, we're far away from Wabash Avenue. He said, people are starting to come in. He said, sometimes we're really busy. Sometimes we're not. And he said, you were always one of my really good salespeople. I want you to come in here. And he said, I'm not going to worry about the trash. I'm not going to worry about doing things here. All I want you to do is sell stuff. That's all I want you to do. Concentrate on that. And I asked him, I said, are you getting any rental action? He goes, not much. He says, it's changing. He said, the stu- you know, he said, so on, this one or two of them had closed down. Universal was done by then. Um, they were getting some action at CRC. And the one on the south side had closed down. And Streeterville was not doing a whole lot or they weren't doing much with Streeterville. So he said, I'll give you 10 bucks an hour and this and this and this. And I said, okay. He said, when can it start? And I said, how about tomorrow? He said, okay. And I had a pedal. He said, take it home with you. Take it with me. I said, okay, thank you. So I started the next day and I worked for him till he sold that business, which was like the end of 91, something like that. And the one really cool thing about Jefferson Street was the fact that he had this built-in garage for the van. We had to move the van on Wabash Avenue. We had to move the van from the parking lot, put it in front of the place, find you know double park it sometimes, and bring that stuff down from the eighth floor, and it was tough. This way, we opened up a garage door. There's a van. <laughs> so we opened up the doors of the van, and it was really easy getting stuff in and out of there. It was great. Yeah. Much easier. Much easier. And. We did some rental things. You know, I remember right away we did some stuff. And um, it was, Jefferson Street was, it was not, it was not as cool as Wabash Avenue because of all the stores that were on Wabash Avenue, the Guitar Place, Rose Records, all that stuff. But And uh, the Wabash Inn with, you know, the great hamburgers and stuff. But Lou Mitchell's was down the street. <laughs> and the Presidential Tower was two blocks away. So... That was okay. There was a place on Wabash that, it's so funny. (laughs) Me and, uh, I used to go there. My dad used to go there. Like, we all used to go there. Um, It was kind of like a buffet. Well, there was was a couple of them. There was one down the street, okay? There was a buffet. 
it, it had I remember it had like a a downstairs mm-hmm. and then it was it was I think right on uh, that big red building. That was just, that's a CNA insurance building. Uh-huh. Yeah, right, right on the corner mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. across from that. And, you know, the Dill Pickle and uh, Nick's and... Uh, oh, I, I think, yeah. And a lot of those places, they, like, as, as like, later on, people would be like, oh, those places are nasty. Don't go there. But we... I, I ate there a bunch of times and it was great. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fantastic. The Russian Tea Room. Um, <laughs> yeah. There was a, there was a bunch of places in that neighborhood. I mean, within a block. Okay. I always say, yeah, my, my immune system is uh, made out of <laughs> made out of steel. Yeah, the the, 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 the best part of the food is it has to have a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that was that was the one that was the one of the great things about Wabash Avenue was all the restaurants up and down the street. Right. Okay, and you know we steak burger walking the Wabash Inn with the you know the great hamburgers. That was my that was my Saturday treat <laughs> every Saturday. You know, did, did you ever work in the food service industry? No, yeah, no. I, I I did for a while. I, I, I kept my kitchen that. like like sparkly clean, but you, you still yeah to. you're you're going to get bugs in there of every course. now and then, and every time happen. you see one, yeah. The, but you got to be really careful. Clean the grease traps, you know. Mm-hmm. Make sure that everything is, uh, you know, really, really well. I worked in a couple of clubs that was whose kitchens were not too good, but yeah. that's the closest I've ever gotten to something like that. Well, the, you know the, you know the food's good if it's busy, because yeah. the thing about even if the kitchen's kind of gross, if it's busy, the food is moving through there so yeah, that's fast right. it's, that it's fresh. Right. So even even if it's been it's only been in the fridge for a little while. So sure. mm-hmm. that's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, but but anyways, um, so so yeah, that that moves from there, and then uh, Drums Limited. It, it was it, it was an organization for a while, He's, and when when did they finally close? He sold that business to these two guys. Who were involved with um, one of the bagpipe bands, and one of the things that I did on Wabash Avenue bagpipe bands bagpipe bands. One of the things that I did on Wabash <laughs> Avenue was well, see, w- wasn't expecting that. <laughs> this is this is one of the things I learned from Maury and I learned from Bill. Okay, with Maury, everything was percussion. Okay, with Bill, it was percussion, but it was even a broader thing, primarily because at the time, you know, all throughout the 80s, there was over 150 bagpipe bands in the Chicago area. Okay, and they all played premier. They played that big heavy-duty premier snare drum with the internal snare snare mechanism that rubbed up against the batter head. Mm-hmm. And it has that real tight sound. It sounds like a snare drum that's choked to death. Okay? And the stick looks like a mallet. It, has a, it, it, it comes like this, and it's like this big, huge, heavy-duty tip. And these guys play. If, you, if I was to play you some bagpipe snare drum stuff, you might look at me and go, your technique is terrible. Because for some reason or another, I don't know why, of course, you and I, we're, you know, our, our interpretation of snare drum rudiments, it comes from the military and your orchestral well, no, I, thing. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So 
Yeah. They're, they're, the bagpipe thing is completely and totally different. Okay. Well, then modern drum and bugle corps. I mean, they they use Kevlar heads on yeah. their drums. Now. This is different. This is this is much different. Big, very big drumsticks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so these guys play. The first time I heard this, I went, "These guys can't play." It sounds like they're sloppy. Well, that's the way they do that. Hmm. Okay. And then when they get on a regular kind of snare drum, they play the same way, and it's, it really sounds like they're sloppy. Okay. Hmm. But with this real tight snare drum thing, with this real tight snare thing, it comes out somewhat more articulate. Right, right. Okay? And Bill was one of the few premier dealers. And I remember Jack Jack and Terry used to come in, and I don't know how many times they bought stuff. Drum heads, I remember that one time they bought like four snare drums and four tenor drums. And the snare drums were expensive. They were well over $1,000 each. Premier? Because they were big, they were like twelve by fifteen. They were big and heavy, and when you did that thing on them, those things were loud. And I helped them out. You know, Bill asked me to handle that account. And yeah, Premier is, I think, out of business now. They've. I, I I'm not sure. I know that's, they're. That's last I heard. They're. I think they're still dwindling. I think they might be still doing something in England. I don't know. I really don't know. Made. But the the English are the best at making fun of themselves mm-hmm. for not making good stuff. I was at the I was <laughs> at the Premier Factory. I have some friends that lived very close they, by. The, the funny thing is, they actually do make really good stuff. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Merlin Rolls Royce engine, yeah, combined with the Mustang. That's right. Helped in uh, World yeah, War Two, yeah, so right. they, they make great stuff. But they make great uh, stuff. Yeah, so sometimes, uh, <laughs> and the truth is, all of the all of the premier drums that we've ever get in here are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think it may just have more to do with just like who wants to buy what, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's interesting. I I didn't know there was a a market for that. Well, Mar- marching stuff we don't, we know nothing about. Here. It's uh, it's one little aspect. So if you take the whole pie, and this is just one little thing, and in Chicago, like I said, there's... Well, the, these days, the marching business, it's big, yeah. but it's completely dominated by Yamaha, mm-hmm. Pearl, Pearl, and... Ludwig. There's a little bit of Ludwig, but it's mm-hmm. mostly... Yeah, which... Mm-hmm. Well, see, this is a little bit different. They're marching, yeah, but this is that bagpipe thing from which, which comes from England. And they play a certain way. It's a certain sound, and it's, you know, it's a little bit different. The joke is. You mean Scotland, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> bagpipes. Yeah. Well, the joke is. The joke is. Why do bagpipe band drummers march when they play? To get away from the noise. Sure. Okay, yeah. that's the joke. Yeah. So uh, I remember I went I I went to one of their competitions, and I heard like five bagpipe bands. And after by the third one, I was like, "Yeah, it's, it's I've had it's enough." Pretty, it's pretty um, piercing music. It's uh, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> I, I like it though. It's pretty. It, it can be okay. And some of those guys played really well, and some of it sounded really good. We some actually, the, funny man. story. We I, I grew up in Wheaton, and mm-hmm. uh, there were, one of our neighbors was a was a bagpipe player. And over years, 
he got he when he first started it was like ooh not so good and then he got better and better and better and mm-hmm. actually by the end it, it was actually it's a hard instrument to play because you have to keep that bag full of air all the time. Well, it's a, it's a really primitive instrument. Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah, like a an ancient organ that mm-hmm. yeah, I mean. Yeah, and so. you got to you got to keep that that thing full of air. Yeah. And you're squeezing the air and you keep putting air in the bag. There's so a lot. You can, a lot, a lot going to, on there. Yeah, it's a lot to <laughs> it. And you know, it's not like playing a regular horn where you're just blowing through that you got yeah it's not easy people don't think about how much technology goes into a horn like Mm -hmm. all those little metal pieces how they're perfectly constructed to and how fragile they are yeah but yeah so um so so when you yeah just tell us a little bit about like in between you you were doing um maybe some gigs and and then how how did you get involved with the drum pad and what what happened The interim is maybe, what, like five, ten years? Five like years, that? eight years, something like that. Um, I, I started selling. I, I, somebody approached me uh, about selling Capella drumsticks, about being a so-called rep. So I talked to somebody at Capella, and I sold some Capella drumsticks, and one of the Capella dealers was a drum pad. Are they, are they still around? Um, as far as I know, they still are. I believe they are. And I think they're, I don't know if they're selling to strictly drum companies or who or what, but I think they are still around. But I sold, so I ended up going to the pad, talking to Jim Strike, who was the owner. I sold him some stuff, and then he said to me, I'm moving from here to here. And uh, he moved literally two blocks away into this bigger place and uh, um, I worked and I was when I left uh, I did the Fairmont that Fairmont job came through and we were there for four years and then I, I was still doing my jazz things with Roberta Miles and playing on and off with Mike Finnerty's band and uh, Mimi Lang wanted to go back to school we ended up losing that job so um, I started selling sticks, and I st- still playing some gigs here and there. And um, I got a job at, on a cruise ship, and I spent most of 1995 in Europe, which was really cool. It was a great oh, time. Oh, yeah, we, we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. right? And when I came back, I ended up talking to Jim, and I started working for him. In, in uh, Europe? You went to? Chicago. Oh. Oh, no, no, the, the cruise ship, though. The cruise ship was in Europe. They spent, you know. Yeah, tell, tell me a story. Um, <laughs> what happened on the cruise ship? Okay. You have before. Okay. Um, <laughs> one of the things that happened on the cruise ship, this was a little little scary. Um, we were going from North Cape, um, Hammerfest in Norway. North Cape is a 10-minute bus ride from this little this little fjord, Hammerfest. And this North is in, Cape, like, North the Adriatic? Cape, no, you're above, no, you're above the Arctic Circle. You're so, in the Arctic Ocean. Like Norway? Way north, yeah, way north. Hmm. Okay. North Cape is the northernmost point on the European continent. And you're above the Arctic Circle, and we went from, north, we went from there. We did the Norwegian Fjord run, I don't know how many times. And then we went from there above the Arctic Circle to... 
Reykjavik and Akureyri in Iceland. And oh wow, um, it w- <laughs> I was talking to this this guy Guido Pastucci, who was he ran the other band that played in the ballroom. Maybe, maybe Italian, of course, <laughs> possibly, <laughs> of course. It was an Italian cruise ship. <laughs> so I remember I I, I go back there. He used to sit in this one area of the ballroom where there were tables and such, like a little restaurant, and he'd write charts for the band. And I remember looking in the back of the, the ballroom was, you know, like a 10 or 12-foot glass wall like this. So I remember the thing's going up like this, and all I see is the sky. And then the thing comes, thing's coming down like this, and all I saw was water. Sure. So it's doing this, okay? And I was like, uh, I got to go. Yours. You didn't have your sea legs yet. I, well, even though I had been down there for so many months, nobody had their sea legs, not with that. And all the, all the activities were shut down, and people were sick, and it was really horrible. Oh, it was, it was like really a storm, horrible. yeah. It, actually, it wasn't. It was just the really bad seas. weather, yeah. really bad weather. And by the time we got to Reykjavik, everybody was starting to calm down. <laughs> sure. But that, that, day and, that day and a half to Reykjavik from there was... Whoa. I mean, I had never experienced anything like that. I remember going, somebody told me, get to the elevators because that's the center of the boat. And I'm holding on to this thing in the elevator, and the thing's doing this. And I'm looking out this porthole, and, I, you know, the boat's doing this, and all I could see was water. <laughs> and I just went, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> so it was not easy. But it was interesting for the simple reason is I had never been, been you know, uh, been in, into anything like that, right? And being seasick is like having the flu. It's horrible. It's really horrible. And I had the button thing, and somebody gave me the button thing, and I had this little band with this little button, and you put it past your third finger right here, and after you wear it for a half hour, all of a sudden, you're not seasick. You're fine. Yeah. Of course, I wore mine for three days. I'm not taking that thing off. So, but <laughs> it was pretty interesting, and. The one thing, the guys, there was a band that played in the ballroom, and there was a Pietro, was a really good trumpet player, and he had a beautiful sound. He was a good player. He was like a lead player, but he had this beautiful sound. They used to come in. Um, we were this was an American jazz quartet. We were playing American jazz on this boat. That's they wanted something American. So somebody said, rather than hiring baseball players, get some jazz musicians. So we played with this husband and wife team. She played piano and sang, and he played tenor and alto and clarinet and flute. Really nice people. And Randy, my, my dear friend Randy Pavic, he and I did the boat. And we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I had never been to Europe, but seeing everything and seeing all these things I had wanted to see, and these things that I was reading about since I was a kid. It was great. It yeah. was really outstanding. We had, that was, that and in one day when we went through the Kiel Canal, uh, that was the only bad weather we had. If there was bad weather, we went the other way. We got around it or we wouldn't go anywhere near it. So um, we were supposed to go to Palermo, okay, but we ended up going around the weather. Palermo is in? Sicily. Yeah. And we ended up going to Tel Aviv. Oh, in Israel? Israel. Oh. So a um, little bit of a military presence there, but it was still co- it was still really cool. Um, yeah. 
it was that we spent some time in in the end the one cool thing about that would happen was from going to Tel Aviv instead of going this way you know back to Gibraltar we went to Crete and that was great beautiful place and uh, there was other stops that we you know who goes to the Azores we were in the Azores for three days at Delgado and uh, Horta and beautiful islands just beautiful and just rugged country, beautiful country, really nice people, um, different stops all over the place. It was great. Had a great time. That's that's awesome. Yeah, the the um, you know cr- cruise ship thing is still a thing. You you can still make money doing that. Although now with yeah current with, you know the, with, with the less way. than ever, but <laughs> that that's still a way to make money. But anyways, yeah, so. If, if we go to, um, how did you get involved with, because this would be after all that for you. How, how did you get involved with the drum pad? You came I, back? I, and then... When I came back from Europe, I went and talked to him, and he, his business was growing. How, how were you introduced? to From selling drumsticks. Oh, okay. And that, what was the company again? Capella. Capella, okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, you were talking about that earlier. And, and then the, the guy who owned the, the drum pad, what was his name? Jim Strike. Jim Strike. <laughs> I, I, yeah, Strike. I hear a lot about him. <laughs> yeah. And he, um, yeah, they, they were like the biggest guys in Chicagoland for what, what maybe ha- 10, 20 years. What happened was um, he studied with... That one guy that taught for a number of years at Triton College. And he started as just a little studio where he was teaching kids. And he started selling drum heads and drumsticks. And then it just mushroomed. And that's when he had this little place. And that's where I first met him. And uh, he started to sell Tama. And he started to sell one or two other things. Peisty, I believe. Then he went to, actually, he moved two blocks away from there to here, okay? It wasn't <laughs> like what Bill did 18 blocks west. It was literally 250 feet. And he moved into this into strip mall, and uh, he, that's where he was till he closed, and that, mu- that business mushroomed for the simple reason is, at the time, um, there was no competition. There was a guitar center store, um, in Arlington Heights, there was um, a store, there was a Sam Ash store in Buffalo Grove, and that was about it. Yeah, so, I, when I was growing up with my, with my dad, I, I would always go to drum shops, and we, we went to a lot of different drum shops, and, and this, was, this was the one that I went to that I bought my first set of cymbals at. And, and it's possible, I wonder... <laughs> It like it, it may have been you who sold us, may have been you. I, I don't know who it was, but the, the there was a twenty one inch Sabian AA um, ride that, mm-hmm. that that we bought, which I think I may have just found in in this <laughs> shop, possibly. And then I I, I bought a set of thirteen inch Rude hi hats. Uh, and then I bought, I think it was like a 17-inch or 16-inch Crash, which was a Zildjian. The Crash, I think, is long gone. 
The Hyatts, I think I actually sold maybe like five years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure, though. I may still have them at my house. I'm not sure. But the ride, I think I actually may have just found in in the back of the shop. Could be. Could I'll show be. it to you. And it's, I, I wonder who, because who, you, you may have been there. The, and you probably well, were there. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and, and then, so you and then, um, b- back to the, the other stuff. Um, how about, yeah, we should, we should talk about uh, Steve Snodgrass. He's, uh, mm-hmm. he's, he, he taught lessons at the Neighborville shop for a while. He yep. still comes in every now and then. He's a great guy. He was, he was teaching there, and he'd work, during, he'd work from noon till like 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, and then he'd have, he'd have three or four students. And, um, so did he teach at the drum pad? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So was he a salesman? or He did both. Okay, a little bit of both. And right. Steve, and I, Steve and I did the Sundays. Okay. Um, Sunday, the shop was open from noon to 4, and the rule was no work. We used to watch. We weren't emptying any trash. We weren't doing anything. If somebody came in, we took care of it. We waited on them. We sold stuff. Okay, sure. but we didn't do any work. We didn't do any trash. We didn't move anything. We didn't open any boxes. This is Sunday. Sure, we're not going to kill ourselves. And basically, we basically we would drink coffee it's the and Sabbath. we <laughs> we would watch Three Stooges VHS tapes on the machine. And we'd sit there and laugh, and somebody come in, we'd shut it off, and we'd wait on them. There were Sundays, there was a couple of times close to the holiday, when we'd stay there till 6.30 or 7 o'clock because the place is just jumping, okay, which would happen before Christmas. And then there were times when, what time is it? It's only 2 o'clock? We've been here only two hours? It seems like we've been here for three days because right. it's just, you know, we're just watching TV. So it was either or, but we had a good time. The Sundays were good, and there were times when, like I said, it was no, there's nobody there, and we play on stuff and check this out and check that out, and um, and then, like I said, sometimes on Sundays it was jumping. And Vic Vic was there too, right? Vic was hired. He because Steve used to always talk about the sidewalk sales. Vic was hired. Um, I left the end of 97, and Vic was hired. We don't have to talk too much about it. <laughs> September, yeah, that... September or October of 97. We're talking about parallels between, um, yeah, like the, so first off, let's start, like, about talking about it, uh, Frank's Drum Shop and Drums Limited, like how that whole thing happened. Um, I can only tell you. The separation. What I what I know, Frankie Ippolito, and then okay, I can only tell you what I know and what I heard. Sure. Right. So what I heard was when Maury Lashan bought the shop from Frank Galt. Okay, Frank Galt opened that place up. The original one was. uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fra- Frankie Ippolito is the New York guy. See, I always get this mixed up. It's it's bloody confusing because because <laughs> there's there's a Franks in New York too. See, Frankie Ippolito. Yeah, that forget was, about that. Okay, yeah, I never said that. All right, I never said that. There was Frank three, Galt. Right, Galt was his last name. Oh, there was three drum shops. In, in let's, okay. let's stick to Chicago. Let's okay, forget about New York. City. Okay, um, <laughs> there are a bunch of there are a bunch of morons anyways. <laughs> yeah, Chicago's were, better. Frank Galt. 
I believe what happened was Frank Galt owned a music store, and it was called the Dixie Music House. And it was Frank, okay, Wabash Avenue, and this was, let's see, um, Adams. I think it was Adams. He was around the corner, okay, from where the 226 Wabash was. Okay. And there was a fire. Oh. Okay. And there's a fire in the building, and Frank kind of got wiped out. And somebody said to him, why don't you just open a drum shop? And he went, that's not a bad idea. Was he a drummer? I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think so. As far as I know, he wasn't. But It just seemed like there was a demand for that. He opened up, this pl- he opened up Frank's drum shop on the fifth floor at 226. Okay, and he started, Frank was from all all the stories that I've heard from one of my teachers, John Noonan, great, great guy, um, from Sandy Gale and all the guys that knew Frank Galt, okay? Frank, you know, I really want to buy this symbol, but I only got 30 bucks. Well, here, I'll take the 30, take the symbol, and pay me what you can when you can. That's the way he did business, and he never wrote anything down, okay? Um, And... People, you know, he wasn't, he was, it wasn't the fact that he was careless. He was just a nice guy. Okay. Kind of chaotic. And it wasn't, it wasn't, no, it wasn't like that. It was just him and another guy. And that's it. And he did business like that. And don't you owe me some money? And they, you know, he took care of it. And his business started to mushroom. It started getting better and better. Morial LaShawn, all these guys were coming in and buying stuff from him because they were all working players, okay? Uh, Roy Knapp and all these guys knew him. My, my old teacher, John Noonan, they, all were, they were all friends with him. They all knew him, and he was a real good guy. And I'm not sure exactly how and when it went from the fifth floor to the fourth floor. I think right around the time that Maury bought that in the 55 or 56, is when it went from the fifth floor to the fourth floor. And one of the first employees that Maury hired was my old buddy Clarence Williams. Clarence was doing all kinds of things, wrapping stuff, fixing stuff, doing this, doing that. He wasn't selling, but he was doing all these other things. And little by little, he hired some other guys, and this business started to mushroom. Okay? And... He saved him and his wife, this lovely lady, Jan, Jan LaShawn, when they would travel, anything that looked cool or anything, if you shook it, it had some sort of sound, he bought it. And he ended up sending it back to the shop. Okay? And he had, when I, when I started there, he had what he called the sound room. Okay? And it was a small room, just, just packed with stuff that had all these different sounds. Okay? Chimes. Cricket sounds, bells, small gongs, tams. A tam is a tuned gong, okay? He had a chromatic set of tuned tams. Sure. Stuff like the Ham's Bear Tom Tom. Yeah, the, the real name for a gong is a tam tam. Mm hmm. Yeah, the. And basically, the difference I, is. I remember that from at some point ba- in my education. <laughs> basically, the difference is a tam is tuned, a gong is like a cymbal in definite pitch. And some some of them have like a protruding center area. Mm-hmm. Bill Crowden had one of those. It was a chromatic set. It was made by UFIP. 
So there was this big stand that was all rope, and it was four, four, and four. Hmm. Okay, and the biggest one was about 20 or 21 inches, and the smallest one was around 12 inches. And it was, he played that on the protruding thing, and when he rented it out to this college, they broke one of them. Oh, no. Because they were castings, and they were, they were real heavy. Mm, okay? Yeah. And this thing was, even though they were big and heavy, it was fra- they were fragile. So he I had mean, to... They made go, out of bronze, I think, right? Um, like yeah. a symbol. Yeah, they, yeah bronze. Okay, yeah. but they were heavy, and they were, they were thick. So this whole thing is like that with this protruding thing that you, you tap. You could tap it in, the, in other places, but you played it right there. And I remember this. They brought they brought it back, and one of them was cracked. Mm. So Bill had to call Italy and try and get one. <laughs> call the president of Italy. It basically, <laughs> he had to call the people at UFIP yeah, because sure. this was made by UFIP. Right. <laughs> and he had to order it and pay for the duty. And it took a couple of months, but we finally got it. You know, and it was it was a little sharp. It was close. Okay, it was a little sharp, and I remember, I think he sold that set to some college or some somebody or not an individual, some organization or maybe some college or some university or some symphony. I'm not sure, but I remember he sold that, and I remember I went through the whole thing. We set it up and played it again, and somebody bought it. But I remember when the <laughs> it was we set that thing up. I can't remember what it's called. Okay, there's a certain name for it, but this, I mean, this thing was really cool. Yeah. It's beautiful sound. So, you know, um, getting so, back to? Yeah, the uh, the drum pad. Do, do you remember me or my dad ever coming in? I mean, probably not. There was there were all kinds of people coming, coming um, through there. Do, do you remember the first time you met my father? Yeah, at Frank's. At least that, you know. Oh, well, so you knew him... I, th- I think, I think, I almost bought a snare drum from him. He used to bring in drums that he would refurbish. And I remember it was a Radio King, and the tension was not good, and this thing sounded it just, it just didn't sound good. So I was going to buy it, and it just wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I know he ended up selling it, and I think he ended up redoing. You know, the, the three-point strainer and something else with it. And got the thing to sound that, good. That's one of the reasons we've always done consignment here, because they, they used to do it there, at least for my dad. I, I don't know if they did it for everybody. but <laughs> No. He didn't take trades. Yeah. Um, that's what everyone says about, yeah. But for n- I guess... Never took trades. Um, my dad just had a good relationship with them. So <laughs> if he had, if he was on good terms with Marty, Marty would take a drum at a time, which yeah. I think is what he did. Um, Bill took stuff. Bill did not take trades. It can get really complicated. I'll say from from my perspective, incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll take like I don't know thirty drums from somebody, fifty, sixty cymbals, and then trying to keep track of every single one mm-hmm. of them and constantly having them calling you and haranguing you yep. about, uh, like, it's not easy to do. And that's why a lot of shops don't do it. That's but right. if, if you keep yourself organized and you are careful, then... You can do that. You can but do the, it and you but, can make some money. But the thing is, what they used to do was one at a time. Okay? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Bill would give you, if he brought in like a Zildjian or a Peisty and he wanted to buy a new one, he'd give you up to $2 an inch. Just to buy it from you? So if you brought in a Zildjian, a 20-inch Zildjian symbol, okay, and you wanted to buy a new one, and you wanted to trade this one for a new one, okay? Two dollars. <laughs> So for yeah. forty dollars for a twenty? He'd give you forty bucks towards But back then that was yeah. He'd give you forty <laughs> bucks towards a new one. Yeah, that, that's actually something. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the drum pad, what he used to do, he had some sort of formula. He would take the list price and he would We have a formula too. We always just kinda of do it in our heads. I think he'd be, I think he took the list price and he cut it in half. Or cut it by something and he'd give you that much. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. a, it's something similar. Yeah. yeah, and it was somewhat similar. Um, Jim took, I know Jim took trades. Um, <laughs> I remember I ended up buying a couple, of, after I left, I remember I ended up buying one or two used symbols only because. The, the drum pad? Mm-hmm, only because it how, sounded how, good. So how long did you work there for? Three years. Um, and then. Did, I left, I left, my, my father had a stroke. Did Vic start like right right around then he started like in september or october of 97 and i left the end of the year Uh, okay because your father had a stroke my dad had a stroke and i stayed home and and took care of him and uh september of 98 he passed away yeah i know you you've taken care of your family yeah Mm -hmm. and um there were times after after, the most important thing family that's right uh i stopped I'd stop in there every once in a while if I needed something, and um, the whole vibe changed. Yeah. That's why Steve left, Lou left. Um, this one guy, Lou Vuderitsis, this young guy, was a really good rock drummer. Um, he could sell a leopard new spots. <laughs> I've never heard that okay. one before. <laughs> he, was, he was a really good salesperson. And he and I talked about some of these things. And one of the things, this happened to me, and it happened to uh, Lou. Somebody, um, Jim was a nice guy with very, very limited retail experience. The owner. The owner. And I was a store manager. I worked for Melville Shoe for almost five years. I had a lot of retail experience before I went into the drum shops. So I could handle fussy customers, I could handle guys that were creeps, I could handle trades, and I could handle returns. And what happened was... Guys like me, who are creeps. Um, uh, no, not at all. What happened was, um, I remember this one guy, I, a Chicago drummer, whose name I will not mention, he bought, uh, said he, he went to a drum clinic, and this guy's playing a set of Yamahas, and Somebody told him that the drum pad's buying this drum set. So he called, and I had helped him with, I had helped him with some cymbals. And um, he called, and he asked, and he asked, me, asked me about this, this Yamaha set. I didn't know anything about it. So he said to me, I want to buy it, and this, and this, and this. And I said, don't buy it. And he said, why? And I said, you're not going to like them. He said, what do you mean I'm not going to like them? They sound great. And I said, when you sit behind them, they're not going to sound the same. And you're not going to like them. Really? I said, yeah, you're not going to like them. He ended up buying the drum set. 
And he buys the drum set. Two days later, he came in, and he's like pulling his hair out. How come I can't get these things to sound good? So Jim gave him a bunch of drum heads. Okay. Two days later, he comes back. He's got the drums with him. He wants his money back. And Jim was basically coming apart at the seams. So I got in between him and him, and I said, I'll handle this. <laughs> I said, let me take care of this. I'll handle this. What are you going to do? I said, never mind. I'll handle it. So what I did was I sat and talked with him for about 15 minutes first. And I can't get him to sound good, and these drums don't sound good, and this, and this, and this. And I said, I told you not to buy them. What would you buy them for? I said, you Which kind of kit was it? A Yamaha Maple Custom. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. What were you steering them towards? So what happened was at the time we were not selling Gretsch, and this is right before we started selling Sonar. Oh, okay. Okay. I know you guys sold a lot of Sonar. Yeah. And what happened was um, I had this really nice Pearl Masters, okay? Thin maple shell, like a copy of a Gretsch drum. Thin maple shell with a cast hoop. And what I did was, I didn't say anything to Jim. What I did was, I always, I was an advocate of, because Roy Burns was a friend of mine from my Frank's drum shop days. I put accordion heads on this thing, top and bottom. It was a 10, 12, 14, five inch snare drum, 16 by 20 bass drum. So I didn't put one of those funky, really dead, I put regular coated heads on this drum set and some strips and this and this and this, and I took them and I put clear, I put black ones on the bottom and I tuned them. And this drum set sounded really good. So I went like this and I said, here, play this one. And he sat down and he played them for about 10 minutes. And he stops and he looks at me and he goes, these things sound really good. I said, all right, you stand over there, I'll play them. So I played them. So I went up to him and I said, what do you think? He goes, those things sound great. I said, you want this instead of those? First thing he said to me was, can you get me a 16-inch 16, 16 floor top? I said, yeah. <clears throat> so what I did was I went right to the phone. I went, come here, call the Pearl guy. And I said, this man is, uh, he's going to be playing in this musical, this and this and this. I need an amber, I need this color, 16 by 16 maple floor time. You got one? I hear him punching his keys. Yeah, I said, can you get, I said, send it to me right away. I said, he starts rehearsals on Monday. I want to get it here no later than Friday afternoon. I can do that. I said, send it to me. So what I did was, okay, put the, I put bags we, we we he had the the yamahas were more money so what i did was it worked on an even it worked out a trade and i gave him tux bags for all the drums gave him a, you know a hardware case and and then he ended up buying one or two cymbals and he owed me for like for one for one cymbal so i which went like this and handed jim the paperwork and i said i took care of it oh didn't say anything yeah. didn't say a word and the same thing happened with Lou. And Jim uh, had sold this guy a GMS set. And the GMS drums were really nice, but they were expensive. Okay? And this was the same thing, a 16 by 20, 10, 12, 14, 5-inch snare drum, but they were 
a red stain in all the hardware on the drums, the lugs, and the hoops was black powder coated. It's fucking 20 inch or 16 inch depth drums. They're horrible. All the years I worked at Frank's and all the years I worked at, worked for Bill Crowden and Mike Gassman, all these people I worked for, nobody ever brought anything back. Yeah. The only time it happened was at the drum pad. I, I, I do deal with things like that sometimes, and there's always a different way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sure. sometimes it's just like, okay, we'll, we'll, you know, whatever. Exactly. But sometimes it's like, look, man, like, come on, <laughs> like, like there's a tiny little scratch the size of my, you know, mm-hmm. like I, okay, I'll I'll give you, a, you know, hundred bucks back. Oh, that's not good enough. I want to return the drum. Okay. And you're paying for shipping, man. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it can be really difficult sometimes. And drummers tend to be perfectionists. They tend to be nuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, yeah, you, hey, yeah, you worked at like like every every shop, you know, in Just the about. history of, of Chicago. And I worked yeah. in a couple of stores, and some and the drum shops were always better than a music store. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Always. And uh, lots of good stories. And there was great people. I worked for you know, I worked for some really great people, and I learned a lot. And it was it was a really great, it was a great experience. Yeah. And I know, and for a while, um, between Frank's and Mike Gassman and the Pad and the other places I worked, I knew every drummer in town. Right. So, you know, at least the guys that were working in bands, and a lot of the guys that were playing in bands. Okay, the studio guys and the jazz cats and the rock guys, the good rock guys and the good jazz guys. I knew all those people. And yeah. helped all of them out at one time or another. So, <laughs> yeah, man, and uh, yeah, it's been uh, been great having you. Yeah, we, we should fun. do it again sometime. I hope so. 